Hi, this is Lief van Heremans. You are listening to an interview episode of The Road to Open Science, a podcast by the Utrecht Young Academy. In this episode, I talk to Christopher Jackson. He's a geologist based at Imperial College in London and a board member of the Earth Archive. An edited version of the interview was published on the third episode of this podcast. Yeah, my name's uh, Christopher Jackson. I'm a, a geologist based at Imperial College in London. Um, I've been here for about 14 years, um, teaching and researching uh, with a focus on uh, things called sedimentary basins. And can you maybe explain how you got involved with open science? Um, I guess I kind of got involved with open science because open science covers a lot of different things. And it was mainly through um, issues related to publishing, really. So it's not kind of open science in terms of open notebooks and people making their their science open while they're conducting it. So it's not just published and that's when everybody sees it happening. You know, people who make it available through the whole of the research process. I actually came to it more through... Um, it would be fair to say some concerns I had about um, open access, so um, how publishers handled the research uh, publications that were arising from what we were doing. So I, I came into it from that. So it, it was like a slow creep over a couple of years of reading more and more about um, these so-called, you know, these frictions between publishers, academics, and their institutions, and also funders. So. Um, yeah, mainly through the publication route. Right. And uh, on the very personal note, I saw this, a talk you gave where you talked about how you got involved with open science through a Twitter discussion. I never used... I, I'm still not on Facebook. Um, I use Twitter quite a bit now, and I was kind of relatively new to that in the last two or three years. But it was mainly through that medium that I became aware of issues related to, to open science, open access... Um, and I, I kind of, yeah, through this kind of discussion we had, or there was a long like thread that went on for a couple of weeks, was a discussion with somebody from uh, Elsevier, or it could be any sort of major publisher, who was kind of defending how they were handling, you know, communication of the scientists' research and how much they were charging for article processing charges and things like that. So I learned a lot via those discussions, and obviously I kind of got quite... Um, upset, I guess, where how we were being was as researchers were being viewed by publishers, um, but also you know to be to be fair to the publishers, I guess I learned a lot from that discussion about how a lot of the kind of power and a lot of a lot of the issues are related to how academics allow themselves to be treated. Um, so I think we have a lot more say in how we publish, and we have a lot more um, control, therefore, over some of the costs associated with publishing. So can you dive a little bit more into that maybe? Yeah, of course. Um, so if we think about it, like if you if you just wanted to, if you didn't have publishers at all, we could just write, we could just conduct and, and publish really good science in, in myriad ways. We could do it through Diamond OA journals. We could, you know, you could um, just exclusively use preprints. You could... Um, get informal peer review, so using preprints, getting peer review, which is conducted outside of the journal um, kind of infrastructure. And we'd be no worse scientists for it if our peers read our work 
deemed it was good and then decided to use it in their own research. We don't need the we don't necessarily need the conferment of it being published in a in a in a journal really. And I think we you know there's the word that's used a lot is prestige that there's a lot of prestige associated with certain journals but that's sort of kind of odd that you know our value as scientists is not just inherent in what we're doing and how we write it and the conferences we go to and how we conduct ourselves when we're discussing that with other people. It's it's as much to do with, well, okay, now I need this additional um, conferment that the, the work is good imposed by the journal's title. That's not to say, you know, the, the journal's still, you know, running the peer review process is still valuable because peer review can, can be valuable and I would say typically is, but I'd I guess I'm just not convinced all the time going through a journal-led process is, is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not for the costs that then come either in the article processing charges if you want to make your paper open access or in the subscriptions if your institution subscribe to you know journal bundles which are very costly and that money is then being spent on that rather than something else. And likewise, if you're funded by... Research councils are funded by um, a private partner. If you do industrially based research like us, then you're having to choose to spend your money on on communicating a good bit of science, whereas you could just give it to somebody to look at. <laughs> right. And so you started something called the Earth Archive. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, we started Earth Archive as a preprint server for um, scientists. And um, so preprints are kind of pre-publication um, or pre-journal submission papers, um, manuscripts, which um, you can upload to a server, then they're available, they get a DOI, so they're citable, they're, they can be appraised by the community, they can be used by the community. Um, but there was no, and you know, there's archive, which has been around for physics and computer sciences and maths for um you know, more than 20 years, bioarchive for life sciences. There's a number of different archives that have been springing up over the recent years. And so we, we, we started Earth Archive for Earth Sciences um, as a kind of, you say, bespoke or a specific venue to host uh, Earth Science preprints. And so the infrastructure is provided by Open Science Framework, which comes from the Centre for Open Science. And, but this was basically, it was directly from the, um, from the frustration with the traditional publishing system it's it's partly frust- it's partly frustration but it's also and you know the the whole idea of using preprint servers and using things like earth archive is not it need not be to replace journal led review the journal led review process or a way of publishing it's another it's a way of augmenting it and in fact it can make it better so if you're able to get discussions going around a paper on the preprint server and that helps improve the site pre-submission to the journal that's better for everyone that engagement uh, you know how it how it makes the how it makes the paper better so it's not like you know I, I would never want it to be seen as a kind of challenge or you know this is our way of completely um, undermining and destroying you know academic journals I see it as being a kind of complementary thing now if academic journals start to become less valuable because the community are happy to 
publish in inverted commas their work on preprint servers and have their science sort of accessed and, and improve the science that way and update versions as you can do on Earth Archive to what would essentially be the final version of record that would be published in the journal anyway. Whether that happens remains to be seen, but that and, and whether that then impacts the publishers in a negative way, again, it remains to be seen. But um, I, I clearly see that the relationship could be symbiotic. You know, it could benefit um, us as researchers and also the the journal publishers. And that's and that's and that's kind of demonstrated by the the views of a lot of journals now. They all accept pre-printed articles that will, you know you can submit a paper to a journal if it's been pre-printed already. And actually, some journals encourage authors to pre-print their article before submission or during the journal-led um, review process. Um, so they obviously see the value that you know many voices and a broad kind of church of people feeding into a paper can only be a good thing. I, I think as well. I mean, it's the same reason I talk to people in bars after conferences about what I just presented because right. I want to right. know their opinion. I want to have a you know what they think and how they feel about the work I presented. You want some interaction. Yeah, I want some interaction. I mean, it's, you know, there was a blog I was reading the other day and somebody made the comment, you know, preprints kind of show that you're open for business, right? This idea that we're siloed doing research in a lab or in our room and then suddenly this paper arrives like two years later after you originally submitted or a year later, you know, that's kind of odd, right? Because actually during those two years, and in fact the two years while you're conducting the research, you're probably out on a conference circuit presenting work mm -hmm. and engaging in these interactions. So why should that interaction stop when you've kind of put the final full stop at the end of your V1 or V38 draft? Yeah. Um, you know, why not keep that, that interaction going um, whilst the paper makes its way towards um, journal-based publi publication? Mm -hmm. So now in my head, I'm trying to compare it to Tweets versus books, if you get what yes. I mean. Tweets versus books, in terms of, do you mean... Uh, How easily it is to publish and get interaction with them? Oh, okay. Um, I guess everything we do is slightly passive, isn't it, mm -hmm. in a way? Mm -hmm. I mean, even a tweet could be passive. You know, there's plenty of unliked and unfollowed tweets. Sure. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean... There's still, I mean, the, the, so the, the issue with preprints, and there, there is some kind of research and some numbers out there about this, is that, you know, one of the key challenges anyway with journal-led publication is getting enough people to review the papers, right? So there's a lot of material coming out. We've got different parts of the world publishing a lot more than they used to. We've got early career researchers um, kind of publishing earlier. So there's, there's a very kind of swollen um, literature there waiting to be reviewed. And trying to squeeze it all through the journal-led peer review process is very difficult. Um, so preprints are a way of kind of helping with that. So there's a lot of work out there which is probably not getting any attention because the editor of the journal can't find any <laughs> reviewers for mm -hmm. the paper. Um, so why not try and do it on a more peer-to-peer -peer system where you could work your local networks and contacts um, to get them to provide input into your research to help improve it, rather than waiting for um, this kind of slightly constipated journal-led process. Right. And um, how are you exactly involved in the Earth Archive? So I was one of the kind of founders, along with the Tom Narok and uh, you know, a number of other people who'd sort of been there before I um, 
started helping with it. But there was a, there was a number of different people um, who came together to start it. We have an advisory board, and um, there's 16 people on that. And so I'm on the advisory board for that. So the advisory board take decisions about um, kind of the strategic direction of Earth Archive. So, for example, one of the recent discussions we've been having is whether to allow open commenting mm -hmm. on a preprint. So, um, hypothesis.is, you know, hypo well, hypothesis, they, they have a they have a, this a, the, an ability or a, a, like a plug-in to a browser which would allow somebody to bring up a preprint and then actually provide peer review directly on it and then it's visible to the community or anybody goes on that preprint site or and you know obviously directly to the authors of that manuscript so we've been discussing all the pros and cons in the advisory board around that you know whether we want it whether we want it whether we want it to be open whether we want to allow anonymity or whether we want people to have to disclose their names um, and there's different views on that, of course, as they, you'd expect with academics. There's different views on the degree of openness people want. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what the advisory board do, making strategic decisions about you know, how Earth Archive develops. And we also moderate as well. We, mm -hmm. we check submissions to make sure that they meet a basic set of requirements, i.e. they're not plagiarised, they don't contain offensive material, they're not personal attacks. And so on, but we're not making a value judgment on those papers. We're not like rejecting them in a classic journal sense and saying this isn't very good. That's for the community to decide. Right. Um, so you said something about uh, how, well, this is about the board, but how people reflect on your work or have different viewpoints on the work of the uh, Earth Archive. Yeah, people, I mean, <laughs> But you know, some people are very colleagues. positive. Actually, I wanted to ask how do your direct colleagues or people you work with oh, uh, reflect um, on this initiative? You know, it's probably like mobile phones when they came out, right? People didn't <laughs> see the value and were scared because it wasn't attached to the wall. Um, <laughs> you know, in some ways, as academics, as scientists, we're very very willing and able and keen and this is how we're built is to kind of take advantage of new things new machines new approaches new problems but oddly enough at the same time some things we've got um like the way we publish is quite entrenched it's quite hard to shift the standard way of of of, of writing up and publishing a piece of research and um so that's been the main challenge not just here at imperial college but more generally with preprints has been just trying to convince people that it's a valid and exciting way of actually continuing with your science communication. It need not kind of jeopardize your publication in the journal. It need not open you up to having your ideas stolen. You know, there's lots of kind of concerns that people have about it. So these, again, these are not specific to my colleagues here because some of my colleagues here, weirdly enough, who come from more mathematical or physics backgrounds, they're completely down with this because they have known about archive for 20 years. Mm. Um, so it's strange how, you know, you know, I'm sure maths, physics, computer sciences and things that archive draw quite heavily from. I'm sure maybe, you know, when that started up, there was a slow burn to get it going. Likewise with bioarchive, there's probably skepticism at the start and quite rightly so, because in those early stages of development of those platforms, there are tweaks, you know, there are, there are, there are cultural shifts that are required and there are kind of modifications that need to and we're willing to make to make sure it is the best it can possibly be for the community and um, so you know it's not the finished article and there's going to be a few 
bumps and a bit of turbulence as we develop it, but that's all good, you know. There is in our science anyway. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be surprised. Mm, nice. nice. Um, and are there any other open science initiatives you are working on to, or any other personal practices, for example? Yeah, definitely. So we've, you know, we've got a code of conduct which is just coming out for our research group and in there, you know, we're, we're kind of educating, um, you know, the early career researchers in our group as to open practices, if you will, about making data available as they're doing their research, making that data available when they publish, using preprint servers as an integral part of the ultimate communication of something they've done. Um, so we're doing that internally. I'm obviously very engaged in social media on Twitter, you know, interjecting and trying to like talk people through things because clearly, you know, the word preprint is new. If I went down the corridor in my office here, you know, I'd guess like 25 to maybe 40 percent, let's say less than half of the people will know what that means. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just general education um, that I'm trying to do. But by this process I'm learning a lot because I'm not an expert I'm not the you know I'm not intending to tell people how it is in inverted commas but um, you know I've learned a lot and I'd like to pass that on because I think it's very exciting and I, and I just like the signal it, it I just like the signal it makes to people about you know being open with your practice your scientific practice and and, and being willing to listen to critiques and and also giving that critique on the other side in a constructive and polite way mm -hmm. so you know how we review each other's papers be they preprints be they for the journals you know that and, and signing your reviews is a very very contentious issue um but i think they all come under the bracket of being open because you know if you're horrible to somebody in a review and you sign your name on it then you, there must be something completely wrong with you mm -hmm. but normally those reviews are unsigned <laughs> So obviously there's a, well, not this tension, but uh, coming back to, to what we're actually researching in the podcast, there are structures on the one hand. Um, for example, the Earth Archive is, is a, it's a formal thing. And then there's culture on the other side, right? It's probably easier to, to, to kind of construct something than it is overall to change cultures and practice isn't there because you know there are there are some infrastructure challenges and technological challenges that can be met but you can sort of I guess you can sort of impose your will on the on the on the thing you're coding or the, the thing you're trying to make work and eventually get something which can work and be modified but actually trying to say to somebody okay you've been doing this for 20 years 30 years 50 years but here's something different and another way of doing things that's super hard um because you're trying to, people, you know, people just don't generally don't often react well to change, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's with very good reason because they spot holes in it. But you know that the spotting those holes should be all used as feedback into improving something which is progressive, but actually could be very beneficial to the community. So um, I've made this joke before, but sometimes in my darkest hours, I kind of think it's absolutely pointless trying to talk to established academics about some of these open science practices and open data practices and open access practices. We should be targeting the discussion solely around early career researchers because they're the ones who are sort of going through the system and will eventually kind of inherit, if you will, 
the 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 kind of the reins of, and the and the, the kind of the way the power structure set up in universities. You know, they're the ones who'll eventually be making the decisions. But having said that, you know, we can't ignore totally people like me who are more senior because they're the ones who are hiring mm -hmm. people, right? And so there's there is that kind of interesting and challenging tension between trying to educate everybody and then trying to make you know the early career researchers feel empowered to make those decisions if they want to be open not to be scared of it because their lab manager or the person who might be interviewing them for a postdoctoral position or a permanent lectureship or tenure position isn't aware of what a preprint is so everybody sort of needs to but that's what's exciting, isn't it? I mean, as, as, as the early career researchers sort of become, this becomes like common nomenclature for them, even if they don't sort of take it on board now and implement that practice, when they're making decisions, they'll at least be aware of them. That might be good. Nice. Awesome. Um, I think we have almost everything. Is there anything you would like to share to the audience? And actually, I didn't talk about the audience, but our audience is aimed at the general researcher who is not on board with open science yet. They could be old or young. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Um, not really. It's just, uh, we, you know, we're all busy as academics. So, you know, we're all trying to do lots and lots of different things at work and at home. And so, you know, when you're confronted with something like open science or open access or open data, it probably feels like it's just another thing to get your head around. So I do have a lot of sympathy for people with that. Um, I think an increasing knowledge around those three things will is, is being and will continue to be imposed by our funders. So as our funders make more and more demands on us to make our data available more widely, I think people will start to have to, you know, learn the terms and learn what open means. And there's lots of different shades of it and we shouldn't conflate what the different bits are. Um, so I'm kind of really hopeful for the future because I think as all those bits kind of start to, you know, the bits of our machine start to talk to each other, the funders, the institution, the academics as individuals, we'll all become more aware of, of what's required to make sure that everything is being shared in the right way at the right time and we're doing still really good science and not penalising people for their choices. Awesome. Thanks. Um, is there anything else you would like to say? No, not at all. It was just a yeah pleasure to be asked to contribute to this. I hope it was helpful. I'm obviously happy to discuss things further with uh, anybody else who has any other questions. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, is there any links maybe you would like to sh share or we, we talked about, we can refer to in the show notes for the podcast? For the podcast? Um, yeah, I mean, the Earth Archive link would be good to share with people so they're aware of that just in case there's any earth scientists listening. Thanks for listening to the full interview edition of the Road to Open Science podcast from the Utrecht Young Academy. I was talking to Christopher Jackson, a geologist based at Imperial Conduct London and a board member of the Earth Archive. An edited version of this interview was featured in our third podcast episode, which also featured an interview with Jean-Sébastien Coe of another open access platform called SciPosts. We love to know what you think of this podcast. The show notes and discussion on the contents are hosted on www.openscience-utrecht.com. There are more episodes coming soon, as well as full interview episodes. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out. 
Search for the voice of the Utrecht Young Academy in your podcast app. You can find us on Twitter using at R2Podcast with the numeric 2. Thanks go to San Lifaez and Marisa Mol for bringing the podcast together and Andy Clark for his production assistance.